Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Dearborn Heights, Michigan. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. On September 21st, 2016, at 1.15 in the morning, Gregory Green dialed 911. He simply told the operator, I killed some people in my family, and said he'd be waiting on the porch for police. When responding officers got to the Green home, they found 49-year-old Greg exactly where he said he'd be, outside in front of the house with his hands in the air. He was taken into custody and transported to the station for questioning. Going off of what he told the 911 operator, police entered the house hoping that he was lying, but having to verify his statement either way. And as much as they hoped against honesty in this situation, Greg was not a liar. In the basement, officers found the bodies of Greg's teenage stepchildren. They had both been fatally shot. Their mother, Faith, was nearby, and she had been gagged and bound with duct tape and zip ties, but she was still alive. She was covered in so much blood that officers couldn't figure out where exactly it was coming from. Knowing there were more members of the Green household, officers continued their search of the house. In a car in the garage, they found Greg's biological children, both under the age of five. They were both dead, but just looking at them, they had no apparent injuries. It was one of the worst, if not the worst, crime scene anyone in Dearborn Heights had ever seen. Back at the station, police questioned Greg and found out that this wasn't the first murder he'd ever committed. Greg had actually murdered his first wife, Tanya Clayton, 25 years prior. Born on August 14, 1967, Tanya Clayton was described by a friend as being so fun-loving, kind, and big-hearted. According to the Detroit News, Tanya married Gregory Green in July of 1989. Not a ton about Greg's childhood and upbringing is known, but what we do know is that he was born on December 10, 1966, and was the youngest of seven children. In early January 1991, Tanya, who had two children from a previous relationship, found out she was expecting a child with Greg. She would never get to experience the joy of bringing that baby home. On July 14, 1991, 34-year-old Greg called 911 to report that he just murdered his 23-year-old wife inside their home. Yes, with each murder, this bag of shit made sure to call 911 and identify himself as the murderer. 
According to an incident report, when officers responded to the residence, Greg opened the door and said, I stabbed her. She's in the kitchen and told them that he'd put the knife on the refrigerator. Once again, Greg was telling the truth. Inside, officers found Tanya, who was 30 weeks pregnant at the time and had been stabbed 10 times in the neck, cheek, chest, and back with a steak knife. The baby did not survive. Details are a little bit murky here, but from what I can tell, Tanya's two older children, who were five and eight at the time, weren't physically harmed during the attack. The fact that Greg murdered his wife and unborn child and then called the police to turn himself in was naturally mind-boggling to officers. How many murderers call and report their own murders? They couldn't figure out why he'd done it, but a friend of Tanya's was able to offer some insight. She told the Detroit News that Tanya was trying to leave Greg, but never got the chance. The friend told the station, Tanya called me and said Gregory started acting differently and she didn't know if he was on drugs or something, but he just switched and changed. Before her death, she told me she was going to church and then going home to pack her clothes. That was the last time I heard from her. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, NCADV, states that leaving an abuser is the most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence. When it came time for Greg to answer for what he had done to Tanya and their unborn baby, Greg initially claimed he was insane, however in the end, pled no contest to second-degree murder. Following his plea, around a dozen people wrote letters to the judge, but probably not in the way you're thinking. The Detroit Press reported that supporters asked for leniency, saying Greg was remorseful, displayed good moral qualities, was a very good Christian, and not a threat to society. I can't attest to who wrote those letters, but I can deduce that they were inherently incorrect. Greg's mother said he was provoked into killing Tanya. She wrote, When Greg called me after he stabbed Tanya, he said he wanted to die. I said not to do it because it wouldn't bring Tanya back and two wrongs will not make it right. He tried to kill himself in jail anyway. Greg's mother continued saying, I don't believe Gregory is a threat to society. I don't believe a long sentence will make him any better because he suffered already and he will continue to suffer for the rest of his life. I hope that you will find it in your heart to give Gregory another chance at a new life. One woman who worked for the Michigan Department of Corrections wrote, Your Honor, I know Gregory is not a criminal, nor is he a threat to society. On the contrary, he is a very productive member and a positive contributor to society. I don't know what backwards bending bullshit you have to do to get so many people to victim blame to a point where a pregnant woman is accused of provoking her and her child's murder and then have numerous people singing your praises, but Greg obviously cracked that code. On March 5th, 1992, Greg was sentenced to 15 to 25 years in prison. Thankfully, there were several people outraged by the low sentence, but according to the Michigan Department of Corrections, the average sentence for second-degree murder is 26 years, with some receiving sentences as low as five years, others getting life, none of which is comforting at all. In early 2004, Greg was officially eligible for parole. The Washington Post reported that Greg's prison record was clean if not perfect, although he was unable to explain the outburst that brought him to prison. He nevertheless followed the rules and stayed out of trouble. He only got in trouble once during his stay in 2002 for getting involved in a fist fight over a television. As clean as his television fight record was, 
Having good behavior in prison wasn't enough for the parole board to poison the community with his presence. Their denial stated, During the parole board interview, Greg demonstrated little emotion or remorse over this horrendous crime. The murder involved his wife, who was pregnant with his child. Green is unable to give background as to where his temper and violence developed from. Before 2004 was over, Greg was eligible for parole again, and again, he was denied. A report stated, Despite completion of his recommended therapy, Green has not gained adequate insight. He explains his conduct as arising out of the victim's mistreatment of him. The victim blaming continued. In 2006, Greg was up for parole twice. A number of people wrote letters on Greg's behalf, including a pastor named Fred. The Detroit News reported that Fred actually wrote two letters. In the first, he told the judge, Gregory and I were friends before his mishap and he was incarcerated. He was a member of our church. I feel he has paid for his unfortunate lack of self-control and the damage he has caused as much as possible and is sorry. Let's remind ourselves that his unfortunate mishap was stabbing his pregnant wife 10 times in the neck, cheek, chest, and back with a steak knife. In the second letter, Pastor Fred wrote, I've noticed a great deal of growth and his understanding has matured quite a bit, as well as his processing skills. If he was to be released, he would be welcomed as a part of our church community and whatever we could do to help him adjust, we would. Greg's parents wrote, We believe Gregory is very sorry for what he did and has gained insight into his behaviors. He has worked hard in prison and he continues to make a positive adjustment. They said Greg would be welcome in their home upon his release. As a sigh of momentary release, Greg was denied parole both times that year. The board's report stating that their reasoning was that he still can't explain his murderous rage. Oddly, he did not utter a word of empathy or remorse. Considering the brutality of the fatal crime, Green needs to enhance insight, empathy, and remorse. The report said Greg seemed to have gained some insight into his crime, but still blamed his actions on past immaturity. So just to be clear here, it's no longer Tanya's fault, but his immaturity. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of immature people, and none of them have killed their pregnant wives. After Greg's fourth denial, he attended and completed several cognitive-based programs. In 2008, he was eligible for parole again, and this time, the board somehow agreed he was ready for release. Their report read in part, Reasonable assurance exists that the prisoner will not become a menace to society or to the public's safety, a stark contrast to his previous denial reports. In April of 2008, Greg was released from prison at the age of 40. Following his release, Greg started dating none other than Pastor Fred's daughter, Faith, who had two children of her own from a previous relationship, Kara and Chadney. Faith told Investigation Discovery that she first met Greg at church when she was 16. He was 10 years older than her, so a full-fledged creep, but she always had a crush on him. They would talk after church, joke around, and things like that. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Greg stopped attending service, and Faith had no idea it was because he'd murdered his wife and unborn child and was in prison. Fast forward to 2008, right after Greg's release, 
Faith, who was now in her 30s, was a single mother of two. One Sunday, she was sitting in church when she noticed a familiar face a few rows ahead. It was her old crush, Greg. Faith felt butterflies in her stomach when she saw him. She told Investigation Discovery that at that point, she was aware that Greg had been in prison, but she didn't know what for. Her father, Fred, was now a pastor who worked with parolees to help them integrate back into society, and one of the parolees he'd helped was Greg. Faith didn't ask her dad about why Greg was in prison, and she didn't know that her father had written letters in support of his release. Faith said she didn't ask her dad because she felt like plenty of people had past they weren't proud of and that they try to move past them and do better. If she had known the truth, she said she never would have allowed Greg into her or her children's lives. After the service was over, Faith went up to Greg so they could catch up. She had her two young kids with her, and she was surprised to see how great Greg was with the kids, which made her like him even more. Faith and Greg's relationship progressed, and she eventually let him move in with her and the kids. Somehow, the reason why he had gone to prison never came up in conversation. The guy who'd called 911 to let police know what he had done didn't feel it was necessary to let his now-living girlfriend and kids know what he had done. Greg had a close relationship with Faith's 11-year-old son, Chadney, who loved anime, paintball, video games, and making movies. He wanted to be a filmmaker when he grew up and was an incredibly talented artist. As a teen, his artwork was actually featured in the General Motors World Headquarters. As close as he was with Faith's son, Greg's relationship with Faith's 8-year-old daughter, Kara, wasn't as strong. That eight-year-old firecracker liked to speak her mind. The Detroit Free Press reported that she was an honor student with a promising future. When she was in high school, Kara joined every extracurricular she could. She was a varsity football cheerleader, a staff writer for the school newspaper, a member of the National Honor Society, and manager of the varsity football team. She was taking honors and advanced placement courses in preparation for college, and her dream was to attend Salem College in North Carolina, because she wanted to be an obstetrician. Kara was the definition of a go-getter. Faith told Investigation Discovery that Greg didn't talk about his past until she straight up asked him what had happened. He told her that he had killed his wife in self-defense. Greg didn't go into detail, he just said that one day in 1991, he and Tanya were arguing when things turned physical and they started pushing each other. Greg pushed back and Tanya fell, hit her head, and died all of which is complete bullshit. Faith did some digging and tried to find information on Tanya's death, but she couldn't find anything. She didn't push for more details because she felt like Greg wanted to move on from a horrible mistake he'd made in the past. Greg was laid back and quiet and didn't seem like he could hurt a fly. Faith also felt like if the murder had been really bad, he wouldn't have been released. She told Investigation Discovery that at first, everything with Greg seemed normal, but now she knows there were signs that something was off. Faith remembered feeling uneasy sometimes, but she didn't know why. It was like a sixth sense, and she felt like Greg was very quiet, almost too quiet. His vibe was off, but Faith didn't know what exactly was wrong. Faith's daughter, Kara, also felt like something off was Greg and wrote in her diary, I don't like Greg. Mom's obsessed with him. Something seems wrong with him. It's like everybody loves him but me. It just seems like he's, I can't explain it. Their gut feelings couldn't have been more right. 
As time passed, Greg's personality started to change. Faith and Greg could be sitting on the couch watching TV and she'd get up to grab a drink and when she'd come back, Greg would be in a completely different mood. Faith believes he was trying to control who he truly was, a rage-filled monster, and he was starting to crack. Around the time Greg's personality changed, Faith had a feeling that something was wrong, but she couldn't physically see anything wrong. Greg wasn't physically or emotionally abusing her, he was just off. Faith ended up breaking things off with Greg because she just couldn't shake the feeling that something wasn't right, but then Faith found out she was pregnant. With that, she gave their relationship another chance. After they got back together, things started looking up. Greg seemed ready to make it work, and after their daughter Koi was born in October of 2010, Greg actually seemed happy. The Detroit Free Press reports that Koi loved wearing her hair down and dressing up in pretty outfits in her mom's heels. She loved pizza, drawing, taking trips. She was a cheerleader and a ballerina, the same kind of strong-willed princess as her older sister. In November of 2010, Greg started working for the city of Detroit's water department. The Detroit Free Press reports that Greg worked there for two years until July of 2012 when a big-ass chunk of dirt fell on his head while he was digging a hole. Greg and the city later reached a settlement, and despite his injuries, Greg was able to work with some restrictions as a dishwasher at a restaurant. While it looked like karma was taking its shot at Greg, he wound up getting a job at an airline catering company. Two months after Koi was born, in December of 2010, Greg and Faith tied the knot. They wound up settling down in Dearborn Heights, Michigan, a suburb right outside of Detroit in a cute little house in a quiet little neighborhood. After the wedding, though, things went back to going downhill. Momentarily happy Greg became detached Greg. Faith told Investigation Discovery that she thinks having a child triggered something in him. He always talked about wanting kids, but once they actually had a child, Faith thinks he realized it was never what he wanted. She tried talking to Greg about his obvious detachment, but he wasn't having it. She started planning to leave, but then she found out that she was pregnant again. For the second time, she decided to stay and try and make it work. But Faith was never the problem, and she couldn't fix something she wasn't breaking. Little Kaylee was born on September 4, 2012. The Detroit Free Press reports that Kaylee was a mama's girl and constantly glued to Faith's hip. She loved singing, cheering, ballet, eating mac and cheese, and playing outside. Again, it seemed like Faith made the perfect children, pizza-loving and mac and cheese included. As picture-perfect as their family should have been, Faith told Investigation Discovery that after Kaylee was born, Greg started acting strange. Even when they were still in the hospital with Kaylee, Greg didn't want anything to do with her. He was distant and his personality was all over the place. Faith was never sure what side of him he was going to be. In 2013, Faith filed for divorce and requested a protection order from Greg. According to the Detroit Free Press, she wrote in her request, He's trying to make me leave our home. We're filing for divorce. He's being belligerent, kicking things. He kicked the couch while the baby was sleeping on it. Just kicking things, threatening me, and saying if I don't leave, things are going to get ugly. Jumped at me like he was going to attack. This went on for hours. According to the Washington Post, a judge dismissed Faith's request for insufficient evidence. Yes, they dismissed the protective order against the man who once murdered his wife and unborn child and was now lunging at his wife, threatening her if she didn't leave, while kicking the couch his baby was sleeping on. 
one can only imagine face feeling of defeat. She never took any action on her petition for divorce and the case was dismissed. After the dismissal of the protective order, things escalated. Something that was painfully easy to predict, but no one was willing to protect her from. Faith told Investigation Discovery that one day, she came home and immediately started smelling gas. She asked Greg what was going on, and he said that the kids must have turned it on. She said there's no way that's what happened. Faith was upset with Greg, so she pushed the issue, reminding him how dangerous it was for the gas to be on because the house could blow up. Finally, Greg told Faith that he turned it on because he was thinking about taking his own life. But the gas wouldn't have just killed himself. Faith believes that was possibly the first time he tried to kill the children. Things only got worse from there. Greg started waking Faith up while she was sleeping with the sole purpose of tormenting her. She started sleeping with sharpened pencils in her robe just in case he tried to hurt her. She realized then that she had to leave. There was no other option. It was no longer safe for her and the kids to stay. One day in 2014, while Greg was gone, Faith and the children packed their things as fast as they could and left. Faith later filed for divorce and things appeared to go pretty smoothly for the next two years. By 2016, Greg was making an effort to be a better person. He was more patient and loving and it seemed like he really wanted to be a family. Faith thought Greg had changed, so she called off their divorce and they all moved back in together. Greg had pulled the quintessential abuser routine where he put on his best behavior long enough to get exactly what he wanted. After a couple months, Faith started to see that Greg wasn't adjusting well to getting what he acted like he wanted all along, you know, his family back together. He was either high or low and there was no balance. With that, Faith decided to leave for a final time. On August 11, 2016, she filed for divorce citing a breakdown in the marriage relationship. With the final divorce petition filed, Faith and the kids continued to live with Greg. As we know, leaving is the most dangerous time for victims of domestic abuse, and the last time they left, they had to do it while he was out of the house. I want to discourage everyone from asking why didn't she just leave the first time or however many times. Abuse is not a simple situation. It's a systematic breakdown of the victim and every support system they have, including their sense of self. There is shame, guilt, fear, financial hardships, and a list of other reasons it's not that simple. Faith did her best to try and protect herself and her children, but the monster inside that house wasn't going to let them leave. On September 21st, 2016, at 1.15 in the morning, Greg dialed 911. When the operator asked what was going on, Greg answered in a monotone voice and said, I killed some people in my family. I shot my two stepkids. They're both dead. And my wife, it was thanks to her I did what I did. She's a piece of work, just kept pushing the issues. Greg had killed his second family and for the second time was blaming his wife. The operator asked if there were any survivors, and Greg calmly responded, She was the only one who survived. I cut her up. I cut her face. I just want to turn myself in. I know I'm going to prison for the rest of my life, and I deserve that. Greg told the operator that he'd be waiting on the porch for the police. 
Like we mentioned earlier, as police responded, the Associated Press reports that they found 49-year-old Greg in front of the house with his hands up in the air. His 17- and 19-year-old stepchildren were found dead in the basement and Faith was found nearby. She was gagged and bound with duct tape and zip ties but was still alive. She was covered in so much blood that they couldn't figure out where it was coming from and she was rushed to the hospital. Officers continued their search of the house, and in a car in the garage, they found four-year-old Kaylee and five-year-old Coy. One end of a plastic tube had been fed into the car, and the other end was duct taped to the muffler. Carbon monoxide was pumping through the vehicle, and though first responders tried their hardest to revive the girls, they were dead. They couldn't bring them back to life. It was an unspeakable scene. At the station, Greg told investigators why he'd killed four innocent children and gravely injured their mother. The interrogation video is available on Investigation Discovery's Evil Lives Here, a special place in hell. In the interrogation, he said, I just felt overwhelmed. The anger turned into hatred, you know, for faith. That's the only thing that had driven me to do what I did. I didn't want to. I tried to fight it. I just got fed up. He added, I can't believe I did this, but I knew once I got to a certain point, I couldn't turn back. Greg then told investigators how he committed the crimes. As a warning, this is extremely hard to hear. Greg described taking Coy and Kaylee out of bed and moving them to the garage. They were still asleep when he laid them down inside the car. He made sure they were comfortable before he attached a plastic tube to the muffler, which he'd purchased a week before, and started feeding carbon monoxide into the car. Greg said he checked on the girls several times, saying they always looked peaceful. Next, Greg woke Faith up and forcefully told her to go to the living room. Faith did what she was told, and once she was there, saw her 19-year-old son, Chadney. Greg picked up a bag of zip ties and ordered him to tie up his mother. When Chadney asked if they could talk about this, Greg pulled out a gun and forced him at gunpoint to tie up his mother. Chadney zip-tied Faith's hands behind her back. Once Faith was tied up, Greg zip-tied Chadney's hands behind his back, then Kara came into the living room completely unaware of what was going on. Greg zip-tied Kara and forced all three of them into the basement. They laid on the ground while Greg bound their wrists, thighs, and ankles with duct tape. When he was done, Greg left the basement and went to the garage to check on Coy and Kaylee. Greg went back to the basement and turned off all the lights. He then calmly explained that he was going to do this for two reasons. He didn't want his daughters, Coy and Kaylee, to be raised by anyone other than him and because Faith had to pay for what she'd done. Greg then fired the gun once into Kara's head and twice into her back. Greg turned to Chadney and shot him in the left ear and twice in the back. Greg proceeded to shoot Faith in the foot twice before holding her face and slashing her from side to side with a box cutter. He then threw the box cutter onto the ground, placed the gun on a stool, grabbed a phone, and called 911. The same thing he had done 25 years prior when he killed his first wife, Tanya. Greg told investigators that he never intended to kill Faith. He said, I wanted her to see what she did and to live with it, just like I have to live with it. Faith told Investigation Discovery, he knew I loved my kids more than I loved him. Greg also knew that Faith wouldn't be able to have any more children since she was no longer able to. Greg wanted to hurt Faith. 
Greg was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and six other felony counts, including torture, unlawful imprisonment, and felonious assault. He faced five potential life sentences. Faith told Investigation Discovery that when she woke up in the hospital, she thought Coy and Kaylee were still alive. When she was informed that they too had been killed, Faith could not believe anything. It was incomprehensible to think that all four of her babies had been taken from her by a complete and utter monster scumbag garbage of a human being that should never have been given another chance to be a contributing member of society, let alone have a whole second family. After all of this, Faith was finally told the truth about what happened to Greg's first wife. She asked her father if he'd known all along, and Fred said that he thought Greg killed his wife accidentally. Faith told Investigation Discovery that she doesn't know how to feel about her father today, that she doesn't really deal with him. Faith knows the entire situation bothers Fred, but he won't talk to her about it. She believes Greg deceived her entire family, including her father. Once news of the murders were made public, there was an immeasurable amount of outrage, and rightfully so. To say that people were pissed that Greg had been released from prison after murdering his first wife would be an understatement. They were furious with the parole board and the Department of Corrections as a whole. A prominent criminal defense attorney explained to the Detroit Free Press that the parole board hadn't technically made a mistake, that the board worked like it should, and that Greg was an anomaly. The attorney said, obviously the parole board exercised its discretion if they turned him down four times, that Greg did whatever he had to do and there's no perfect system, adding, there was no mistake made by the criminal justice system. This is not someone who slipped under the radar. Everybody did their job. It's a horrible thing. A Michigan Department of Corrections spokespersons told the Detroit News, this incident, while tragic, happened years after he was discharged from our supervision. Our parole board works hard to review the facts and information they have at the time to determine whether they have reasonable assurance that a prisoner won't reoffend and to make sure they make the most informed and responsible decision, adding, it can still be very difficult to predict a person's future behavior, especially through a person's lifetime. The Department of Corrections pointed out that there were never any letters opposing Greg's release from prison during the entire time he was eligible. And even if he hadn't been paroled in 2008, he would have been released in 2012 for good behavior. After Greg was ruled competent to stand trial, he decided to take a plea deal. In exchange for pleading guilty to four counts of second-degree murder, assault with intent to do great bodily harm, torture, and felony firearm discharge, the remaining three charges were dropped and a life sentence was taken off the table. Faith approved the deal as it spared her the trauma of having to go to trial. On March 1st, 2017, Greg was sentenced to serve between 47 and 100 years in prison. The Detroit News reported on the hearing where Faith bravely addressed Greg, stating, You are a con artist. You are a monster. You are a devil in disguise. You are now forever exposed. She said, There's no punishment that fits the crime. Not even torture and death would be justice. Your justice will come when you burn in hell for eternity for murdering four innocent children, all because you're insecure. 
Faith described nights where she wakes up screaming and sweating, thinking she can save her children. She said, Then I realized that the nightmare is actually reality and my children are really gone. Faith told the court, I miss my children so much that words will never be able to explain. Time will never heal this wound. There is a hole in her heart and soul that will never be repaired. Faith talked about how she suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder, and some days she wishes she had died. At the time of the hearing, she had lost her short-term memory. Doctors told her that her brain was protecting her from memories of her children being killed in front of her. But tragically, Faith's memory came back and she's now able to remember exactly what happened. During the hearing, Greg also addressed the court. The Washington Post reported that his brief statement was apologetic, but he gave no explanation of the motive behind the violent deaths. Greg stated, I feel bad for how this has deeply impacted everyone, and may God help them help me. Greg said he thinks about his daughters every day, and according to the Associated Press, he also seemed to offer an excuse, saying all he wanted was a God-fearing spouse who would support him. Judge Hathaway told Greg this was the worst case she'd ever seen. She said, Fathers are supposed to protect their children. Husbands are supposed to protect their wives. She noted that while Faith read her victim impact statement, Greg stared ahead and appeared utterly unmoved. Hathaway said his actions were inconceivable and beyond understanding. Hathaway told Greg, I'm convinced that you will be incarcerated for the remainder of your life. And she's probably right. Greg is currently incarcerated in Adrian, Michigan, and his earliest possible release date is in September of 2063. He'll be nearly 100 years old. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out this case's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. For access to ad-free and bonus episodes, subscribe to our Apple Premium or head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 